Hello and welcome to this podcast in the ENT Expert Opinion Series. My name is Niall Jefferson. Our topic today is on stapedectomy and my guest expert is Dr. David Pohl. Dr. Pohl completed his fellowship training in Australia and went and did further fellowship training in Tübingen in Germany with Professor Dietrich Plester. He is currently the president of the Australian Neurootological Society and consultant surgeon at Royal Prince Alfred and the St George Hospitals in Sydney. He has published widely and has presented nationally and internationally with a particular interest in vestibular pathology and physiology and continues to have an active role in education. Thanks for joining me, Dr. Paul. Pleasure. Pleasure, Niall. So today our topic is uh, stapedectomy. Let's start with what is otosclerosis and how common is it? Otosclerosis is is an interesting condition. It's peculiar to humans. It doesn't occur in other mammals. It's a condition in humans that's actually confined to only one bone or one area of the body, specifically an area called the otic capsule. The otic capsule is that hard bone that encapsulates the hearing and balance organs, which are the cochlear and the semicircular canals. Uh, that's obviously housed in the petrous temporal bone, which houses the hearing and balance organs. The otic capsule has a peculiar propensity to otosclerosis by by which I mean small foci or small deposits of bone can occur anywhere over the otic capsule, randomly, generally, and that's the phenomenon of otosclerosis. More accurately, most of these deposits begin as soft bone called otospongiosis, and then in a process of remodelling and deposition of bone, become harder and harder over time, and thereby gain the name of otosclerosis. So in Europe, it's very popular for this condition to be known as otospongiosis. And so it is a random process, generally, uh, that this bone, new bone, forms on the otic capsule. As luck would have it, it often deposits over the cochlea, which is the obviously the hearing organ, the sen- which houses the sensory elements, and at an area around the last bone of hearing, the stapes, particularly at the anterior end of the stapes in an area called the fissula antifenestrum. So otosclerosis is peculiar to humans and peculiar to that particular bone, the otic capsule. Its instance varies according to different reports, but somewhere in 1 in 200 may manifest some clinical features of otosclerosis. Interestingly, in cadaveric studies, it may be twice as common. So in the post-mortem room, many people have deposits of otosclerosis and they're asymptomatic as far as we look, if we look back in the, in the clinical history. How does this condition then manifest? Well, most commonly it manifests over a period of time where a patient, usually female, notices a drop in hearing, which is insidious. If it's in both ears, they'll present a little bit earlier, but if it's in one ear, presentation's often delayed. It can also present as, uh, as tinnitus and just loss of social um, ability in terms of hearing and so forth. Interestingly, these people do better in background noise. So when people are speaking at a function or, you know, at a party, because the ambient noise makes them raise their voice, they can hear, these people hear better, and that's called paracusis willisi, where they hear better in background noise, which is very unusual in people that have hearing loss, as you are well aware. 
that's the manifestation in terms of hearing loss. Very rarely it can also manifest as dizziness, and that's rather uncommon. We call that otosclerotic hydrops, and it presents with a many-as-type picture uh, of recurrent dizzy episodes, perhaps some fluctuation in the hearing. Is there a known etiology, and are there known risk factors for this condition? There is not a a clearly identified etiology, although of recent times the measles virus has been implicated. People have thought that this may be an abnormal reaction, bony reaction of the otic capsule to measles virus in childhood and as some sort of process thereby bone deposition occurs. That's not fully uh, understood, but some, some series have suggested that the virus in fact does, after some years... Uh, trigger this bony bony reaction on the otic capsule. And measles virus has been identified from some of these foci. So that's an etiology that's not set in stone at this stage. We know it uh, runs in families, but that may just be a manifestation of an unusual reaction to the measles virus in a family cluster. We think that the condition is autosomal dominant with varying penetrance, meaning not everyone in particular family would be affected, especially the females. Other risk factors, well, commonly it occurs after pregnancy or during pregnancy, that is the presentation of hearing loss does, but it's not clearly a risk factor as such. Obviously, if you're female, you're twice as likely to present with this uh, condition than a male. And obviously, I mentioned the family history. If there is a family history of hearing loss, um, especially later in life where surgery's been needed, that's something to inquire further about. How then do these patients present to you? Well, the best way to summarise that, Niall, is to say with progressive painless deafness. Often, as I mentioned, insidious in its onset. Sometimes the patient present with tinnitus, specifically pulsatile tinnitus. Because their hearing's poor but their cochlear function's often good, they can hear their pulse especially at night and during exercise and so forth. Very rarely do they present with uh, vestibular features, although um, that's certainly um, seen from time to time. So progressive painless deafness in one or both ears, it's commonly symmetrical but not always so. So tinnitus, hearing loss are the the commonest presentations. So having identified those parts of the presentation, what else in the clinical history do you need to identify? Well, I think the single most important thing is to exclude a history of suppurative ear disease in childhood. So suppurative ear disease in childhood um, means that we're looking at a series of inflammatory processes in the middle ear that can subsequently cause ossicular fixation or discontinuity. Most commonly, it means that the patient has no history whatsoever in childhood of hearing loss. A good way to ask or to inquire about that sort of question is, I'll often ask the patient, when you were 15 or 16, did you have any trouble hearing on your mobile? And if the answer to that is no, then it's fairly clear that the patient had fairly normal hearing. You can ask about their educational experience in high school. Did they have to sit at the front of the class, or do they ever have to go to have hearing tests for any reason, or do they remember having otalgia or ear discharge? So excluding suppurative ear disease uh, is important. So therefore, we're looking at hearing loss that essentially has its onset in adult life. Rarely in women, it can present young in, in adolescence and in, in teenage years, but that's relatively uh, uncommon. Bilaterality is very important. Both ears may not 
be hard of hearing, but both ears may have a degree of mild hearing loss on assessment, uh, uh, clinical assessment, and, I, and we'll come to that later. So the, the important points in the history are progressive painless hearing loss in the absence of suppurative ear disease. Having taken your history, what does your physical examination involve, and how useful is the Schwartz's sign? Well, the clinical examination basically needs to identify a normal ear canal and ear drum. The features that you're looking for, is there tympanose growth on the drum? Is the drum retracted? Is it atrophic? Does it show signs of past sort of inflammatory um, embarrassment during childhood? Thereafter, it's an assessment of the hearing. I think the tuning forks are fundamentally important. They're more important than the audiogram, in my view. Audiometers may not be calibrated accurately, so tuning forks are the main testing that you need to do to assess whether the patient's got a conductive hearing loss. And it's important to mask the ears appropriately. A free-field testing, I'll do that as well with a Barani box to mask the contralateral ear. So I've got a clear sense in my own mind of what the audiogram should look like. So essentially a normal drum head with a conductive hearing loss in the clinical uh, evaluation. Subsequently, obviously, an audiogram is important. And it's important that we focus or make the audiologist focus on the bone conduction line and the air conduction line because sometimes they don't quite understand exactly what you're after and that they be masked appropriately in the, in the appropriate setting. Stapedial reflexes are important, uh, quite fundamental, uh, especially in other conductive uh, settings, conductive deafness settings. So uh, one of the traps here is if there's a significant conductive hearing loss, the stapedial reflexes can be absent because we can't generate enough stimulus to the ear to activate the reflex. Uh, that doesn't mean the reflexes are absent, I should say. So if the hearing loss is mild in the 20 to 30 range, uh, then an absence to pedial reflex is very telling, especially if it's bilateral. And I make the point here that one ear may have a conductive hearing loss, the other ear may be normal, but the ear that's normal may have either an absence to pedial reflex or a negative kick to the reflex, indicating that there is an abnormality of fixation of the stapes and thereby the stapedial reflex is pathological. And it's almost the good ear that gives you as much clue about the diagnosis as the bad ear. Because if an ear is normal and it has an absence to pedial reflex, obviously in the absence of past facial nerve history or facial nerve paralysis, but in a setting of a normal ear, no past otologic history, that's a very, very telling uh, feature. The other thing that's worth doing is occasionally you'll see a drum that's mildly scarred. You're not sure how much of that is relevant in the conductive hearing loss. And a good thing to do is to take some MLA, which is local anaesthetic ointment, place it on the malleus, sit the patient outside in the waiting room for 10 to 20 minutes, get them back in, and then palpate the malleus to see if the malleus is mobile. That will exclude attic fixation or fixation of the malleolar incudomalleolar complex. Um, and it's simple to do. And if you're in doubt, it will help you exclude malleus head or, or attic fixation uh, with, a, with a fairly simple simple uh, examination test. The Schwarzer sign, well, the Schwarzer sign is very important. I mentioned earlier that the pathology of this condition is uh, otospongiosis turning to otosclerosis. In the active phase of bone deposition and remodelling, 
the vasculature over the aortic capsule uh, increases, and that's what we see as the Schwarzer sign. This is the blush red over the promontory. And when you look at it during a clinical case, there are prominent blood vessels coursing over the often over focus or over the promontory. It indicates an active phase of atherosclerosis. And I think if you see Schwartz's sign, you should be careful uh, about offering uh, operative management in that setting. It indicates to me that the ear is in a process of remodelling, otosclerotic foci are being deposited, and that the ear may be somewhat fragile. And so for Schwarzer's sign is very obvious, especially in a setting where the hearing has been progressively worsening quite rapidly, then I would uh, be careful, I'd be very uh, prudent about advice about surgery in that setting. So I think the Schwarzer's sign, to me, is not so much diagnostic, which it is to an extent, but it gives us some important prognostic uh, indicators about operative advice, uh, should that be appropriate. You've talked about the audiogram, and I do want to touch on the Carhartt notch, but are there any other investigations that you organise, and in particular, what's the role of CT scan in this condition? I don't CT scan these patients. Uh, I think that most reports, even from very good neuroetologic radiologists, they're not able to tell me whether the foot plate is definitely fixed, whether it's thickened, uh, whether it's bone, whether it's tympanosclerosis. So unless I'm very unsure about the diagnosis or there's something in the history that doesn't quite add up for me, I won't CT scan a patient with uh, painless progressive conductive hearing loss. So the, my investigations essentially are the audiogram and the stapedial reflex. I mean, if there's a lot of asymmetry in the bone line, then sure, I might be thinking, well, in this context, could there be something else going on retrochoclea? But that aside, uh, they are my essential, uh, essential tests. How do you determine if a patient has cochlear otosclerosis, and does this change your approach? Well, I think there are several scenarios here. The most difficult scenario, of course, is a patient presents with sensory neural hearing loss alone. And the sensory neural hearing loss may be, you know, moderate. And so stapedial reflexes, stapedial reflex won't necessarily help you in that setting. If it's only in one ear and the other ear is normal, and the, and the stapedial reflex is absent in that ear, then it's very helpful. If you see a Schwarzer sign, it's helpful. If you have a family history of some patient needing a stapedectomy, patients wearing hearing aids without any knowledge of, of suppurative ear disease, then they're the sorts of things that I put together to make a diagnosis of cochlear atherosclerosis in the absence of a conductive component. And I think that's very difficult. CT scanning is important in that setting alone, where a halo sign where you show some change in the mineralization of the cochlear is, is obviously diagnostic. In the setting of a mixed hearing loss, I think it's far easier. That is, in an ear that's never been operated where the bone line is not normal and there's evidence of a conductive hearing loss in perhaps in both ears, then you can safely say that a component of the hearing loss is attributable to the cochlear atherosclerosis. And I think that setting is much easier. Uh, the other setting that's difficult is if the patient's had previous surgery and they've got a conductive loss and the bone line's down a bit. Again, that's a difficult call as to whether that's a post-operative phenomenon or whether it's cochlear atherosclerosis. Okay, so we've come to our diagnosis of otosclerosis in this paper. Patient, what is the role of medical therapy, in particular fluoride therapy? Well, I think if there's 
evidence of progressive drop in the bone line or you've been able to demonstrate a halo sign or the family history is positive, contralaterally shows an absence to pedial reflex, then I do use fluoride. I use 25 milligrams a month for three months, so three months on, three months off, and I continue that indefinitely. I don't use bisphosphonates at this stage. Um, I follow those people on, on fluoride and do their audiograms every 18 months to two years, and... The hope there is, and the published data suggests from the Scandinavian work, that in an unoperated ear, that it keeps the cochlea robust for longer. I mean, it used to be simplistically thought that the fluoride stabilises the lysosomes in the otospongiotic process. Uh, whether that's true and stops sort of leakage um, or seepage of uh, hydrolases into the cochlea, we don't know for sure, but that was that that's been the concept of the fluoride therapy. In relation to surgery, are there contraindications to surgery? Well, there are absolute ones and there are relative ones. Obviously, absolute contraindications, in my view, are, and it's common in Australia, of course, significant exostoses. Now, you only need a pinhole through exostasis to have normal hearing. So a conductive hearing loss in that setting, you can't see what's deep to the exostasis is your problem. Scan in that setting sometimes might be a little bit helpful, but usually there's just debris there and it doesn't help hugely. So I think the presence of exostasis is a limiting factor, and I, and I strongly feel that substantial exostasis should be treated first, and then at a later time they should have a stapedectomy. Um, because exostoses are often in a setting where the canal, external canal, is not sterile. And I think you put the inner ear at substantial risk when you're working through that sort of field. I'll just make that one point there, which I think is important. If you believe the patient has exostoses and possibly atosclerosis, when you remove the exostoses, make sure you do your tympanotomy at the same time, confirm the diagnosis, but don't do the stapedectomy. It doesn't look very good on your return visit uh, to second stage surgery when you say to the patient, well, actually, I did look in the middle ear and actually didn't have otoscarosis. <laughs> you had um, very abnormal ossicle or something and I couldn't do anything about it. You can actually make that diagnosis at the stage of exostosis surgery and be sure that in six to nine months, and I leave it that long, uh, six to nine months you can go back and offer reasonably uh, a prognostically sort of reasonable outcome offered to the patient for stapedectomy. So exostoses, obviously in eotitis external and upper respiratory tract infection, surgery should go ahead. When we talk about relative contraindications to surgery, I think that if the deafness is only in one ear, you need to have a long talk to the patient about what we are trying to achieve. That is, if one ear is near normal or near normal and the other ear is, is the conductive ear and it bothers them, you need to tell them that you may not attain hearing that will match the other ear, doesn't matter how good a stapedectomy you do, and that all you are doing is probably improving their speech discrimination and hearing in background noise, but perhaps not their overall hearing levels, and that has to be made clear to the patient because they can be disappointed in that setting. So that's a relative contraindication. An absolute contraindication in the otologic setting is the presence of vertigo. And my rule is that if you've had vertigo in the previous 12 months, undiagnosed, uncertain, you shouldn't be doing stapedectomy on that patient. Our biggest fear in that set, well, there are two fears in that setting. One fear in that setting is that the patient has some inflammatory process in the ear, the ear is adapting to some vestibular insult, 
and you're going to insult it again. It doesn't matter how good you are as a stapedectomy surgeon, you insult the a little bit at surgery. The second problem is that if they've got a bit of sclerosis causing hydrops that you don't recognise, and you've got saccular distension which you don't recognise, you are much more likely to get a sensorineural hearing loss in that setting. So I think that's a red flag, and I think you should take heed of that. The The question of whether or not you can do stapedectomy in benign positional vitigo, um, there's no doubt that if you do stapedectomy, some of those patients do have some benign positional vitigo transiently occasionally, especially if it's a slightly traumatic uh, stapedectomy. I don't view benign positional vitigo nearly as uh, as seriously as I do um, spontaneous rotation of a tiger, either vestibulopathy, um, undiagnosed, or or hydrops. That those those really do bother me. So I think that's an absolute contraindication to surgery. Um, yeah. So so they're the main things that I look at in the history. The other concern is that if the bone conduction threshold has been dropping rapidly, or the patient has had their hearing dropping rapidly. I'm tentative about offering surgery. I'd like there to be some stability, in, especially in the bone line, because I think that ear is undergoing change, and as I said, I think it's potentially fragile, and I think it adds to the centrineural hearing loss risk at the time of surgery. So they're my main considerations in terms of contraindications. I mean, there, there, there's a litany of contraindications that you might announce, uh, you know, espouse during an exam, but they're the, they're the important practical ones. We're going to talk in a bit more depth now in relation to surgery. Um, I'll start with, if you wouldn't mind, just outlining the general principles and steps for a stapedectomy, and then we'll talk about some of the scary situations that potentially can be faced. So to start with, what are, what are your steps in the surgical approach? So I'm, I'm a great believer that the gold standard for stapedectomy is under local anaesthetic. Uh, I've espoused this for 20 or 30 years, and I do it for two reasons. First reason is that intraoperatively you get some real-time information from the, from the patient, and that's important. The most important component of information that you get from the patient is the presence or absence of the tiger during the procedure. Um, and therefore, you can abort, modify uh, your procedure during that during that uh, in that situation which you, you are not aware of that and it's occurred to me in surprising settings where I would have sworn there should be no reason why the patient would be getting a bit dizzy and I've, I've benefited from it and as, as hopefully as the patient. Second issue is that you can test the hearing intraoperatively. What you think is a good crimp, what you think is a good position, what you think is a non-fouling piston, those things can be modified, adapted, Length of piston can be changed. So there are some real issues that you can address at the time of surgery, which I think are beneficial to the, beneficial to the patient. So I do local anaesthetic. I just infiltrate around the ear generally. I infiltrate down the vascular strip. I do the anterior wall as well because I put a plester retractor, so I do an endoral incision. I use a plester retractor in the endoral incision. And then a plester retractor with two prongs on it and one blunt uh, face on it to widen the canal. I think the, the, a good view is good for stapedectomy. Plenty of light is good for stapedectomy. 
I do a tympanomiatal flap which is all above the quarter tympani, so very narrow flap laterally, slightly wider medially. Reason being, you don't want a lot of tissue in and over the drum at the time of surgery. When you enter the middle ear, you only need to go as far as the uh, quarter tympani inferiorly, so it's really that quadrant, that posterior superior quadrant. I think that there is an important issue regarding curetting of bone. I'm, I believe that you should curette from the edge of the notch of the venous rather than scoop laterally. Um, and you should use the front wall as a fulcrum to add to your mechanical advantage. You'll do much better with, uh, with curetting bone when you use uh, a technique such as that. Once I've entered the middle ear, my next step is to preserve the cordae if, I'm, uh, if I can, and most times I'm able to do that. Next step is to identify mobility. So the next process is I, I will bump the, uh, terribly gently bump the uh, incus to make sure it's mobile, and then I will, underneath the malleus handle, I'll mo- uh, move that to make sure that the incudomalleolar complex is all mobile. Once I've identified that, I'll then palpate the posterior cross and make sure the stapes foot plate is fixed. When you look at a stapes foot plate over you, you can tell they've got otosclerosis, but you nonetheless have to go through those phases. They may have otosclerosis and attic fixation, and then you have to make decisions about what you're going to do in that setting, and that's, that can be tricky. So, uh, so that's, that's the next step. If I can see this, uh, and when I do the curetting, I make the point to everyone that you must be able to see the pyramid. If you can't see the pyramid, you can't see the most medial part of the posterior crust, and you must be able to see that for retrieval purposes on occasion. I'm a reverse stapedectomist, meaning that my next step is to take a trephine and trephine the foot plate with the stapes intact, the tendon intact, and the incodostopedial joint undivided. Why? It stabilises the stapes, and you almost eliminate, and I'd say eliminate the risk of a floating foot plate because it's all held by those structures. So the plunger, that is the floating foot plate that plunges away from you, is generally avoided. So then I'll use a 0.3 fish trephine. I'll make a 0.3 trephine. If you can, in the middle of the foot plate, that seems to be the safest area. But if you do reverse stapedectomy, your view is sometimes limited and you have to opt for doing a trephine where you can see. And uh, if that's the case, you pick pick a spot that looks the bluest of all and you um, do the 0.3 trephine, you enlarge it to 0.4 and 0.5. Once you've done that, then you're free to A, disarticulate the stapes from the incus, divide the, incudo, uh, divide the stapes tendon, and then I use a small hook to score the posterior cross, so I kind of pre-fracture it before I fracture the... Uh, foot plate down. I mean, in that setting, uh, laser's great too because you can do the posterior cross with the laser. Um, and at that point, I've basically got a foot plate with a 0.5 trephine in it, and then I'll measure uh, to the undersurface of the incus, add 0.5 of a millimetre. And so most times we use a piston length of about 4.5 millimetres. So I'm aiming to use a 0.4 uh, by, um, by 4.5 piston most times. I should make the point that the vast, vast majority of patients do well with a 4.5 piston. But I've put 4.5 pistons in patients under local anaesthetic and they've gone, oh, and they're dizzy. The piston's too long. And you shorten it and you shorten it until they're not dizzy. And they don't suffer any consequence from that. But if they were under general and they wake up dizzy, have they got a leak? Did you do something to the, to the labyrinth? What's going on? Mm. 
and here you know immediately what the story is. And then I put a little bit of seed, uh, connective tissue around that. I'll crimp the... I'm a manual crimper, uh, so I use a fish piston or a Richards 0.4 by 0.6 if I have a bigger trefine or I've got a fracture in the foot plate, a bigger, a bigger fenestrum. And then, then I'll test the patient's hearing. So I'll occlude and I'll mask the other ear and I'll do a whispered voice test and match it with what I had in the surgery. And if I, the guy had a one, one foot whispered voice in the ear I'm operating on and with a masking in here to two to three feet and he tells me he can hear better, we're in business. Close the ear, one silastic over the drum and see the patient in 10 days with, with a, what I call an activity statement, things they're not allowed to do. And we all know these heavy lifting, nose blowing, straining, um, you know, stifling a sneeze and so forth. Um, so that's basically the, the surgical approach. What do you do if you encounter an overhanging facial nerve? Well, I think that uh, they, that comes in degrees. If I cannot see the foot plate at all and I can't uh, insinuate a 0.3 trefine between the overhanging facial nerve onto the foot plate, I might say to the patient, this is not worth pursuing. The risks are too hard. Uh, risks are too great. I think one thing I should point out here, if the facial nerve is overhanging but it's still encapsulated in bone, you're in better shape because the worst scenario is that you fenestrate the foot plate sometimes almost blindly, then you fracture down the stapes and, and the other steps, and you don't realise that the facial nerve is being held up a little bit <laughs> by the uh, by the stapes, yeah. and you get this terrible phenomenon where the, where the facial nerve starts to sort of increasingly, inferiorly sort of obliterate your view of the foot plate until you can't see. And then you've got a then you've got the wonderful prospect of trying to put some connective tissue on the foot plate. Um, you usually can't put a piston in in that setting, and hoping that that you'll seal any leak that you've created. So they come in degrees. And my rule is, if I can see the foot plate and I can fenestrate it, I'm happy to go. If I cannot see the foot plate, doesn't matter how hard I try, I think that's a risky procedure. They're better off with a hearing aid or a Baja or whatever we elect. Now. A floating foot plate. Well, as I alluded to e- earlier, if you do reverse stapedectomy, a floating foot plate is a very rare entity, very, very rare indeed. And it, um, you may, you may, when you try to fenestrate, you may mobilise the foot plate, and the whole foot plate may be mobile, but you've got the luxury of it all still being attached to the crura and to the to the stapedial st- tendon. So you're not in bad shape. You can retrieve that foot plate. So in a setting such as that, um, floating foot, the whole procedure of reverse stapedectomy is trying to avoid the floating foot plate phenomenon. If you get one, look, the only options you've got is to drill over this uh, promontory a bit to try to get a hook under. That sounds easy. I've been doing stapedectomy 30 years. I reckon it's difficult. <laughs> um, so floating foot plate, my advice there is avoid it. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, what about a gusher? A gusher, um, yeah. Look, so the gusher is the the, the history is the thing the thing here. You've got a child, a young person who usually presents with a bilateral symmetrical conductive hearing loss, and it's important to go back in the history because surprisingly, on surprisingly numerous occasions, you'll get the history. Oh, 
We had grommets when we were seven, but it didn't help the hearing loss. And they've had grommets for a conductive deafness thinking it was a middle ear effusion. And that's a clue. Um, if it's bilateral and they're young and they've got that sort of history and the parents say, look, they've always been hard of hearing. In fact, we took them for hearing tests, try to get the hearing test. If you can show they had a conductive loss when they were 10 and it's about the same as it is now, you've got congenital stapes fixation. And that's the diagnosis that you've got to try to make to avoid the gusher. So in that setting, I will scan the patient. And as you know, I'm looking for cochlear dysmorphic pattern and also a widely dilated internal auditory meatus. So they're the two things I'm looking for and also the cochlear aqueduct being being very dilated. It may not be patent, but it's dilated. Um, and so in those situations, uh, we're looking to avoid a situation that might lead to a gusher. If the scan's normal, then I'm happy to proceed. If I get a gusher when I do the foot plate trefine, um, as I said to you, what I do is I'll do a 0.3 trefine. If I get a gusher there, then I'll take the 0.4, I'll make it a 0.4 trefine, I'll take my 0.4 piston and I'll put it in the 0.4 trefine and I tell you, that fixes the gusher. Your problem uh, is if you're doing the trefine and you crack the foot plate. If you've got a setting where you're doing reverse stapedectomy, and you've got a gusher, you've still got the crura up, so you're much more likely to be able to exert some degree of packing that will stay there with a degree of fibre and glue that will probably control the gusher. Um, head up as much as you can when you're doing it to decrease the uh, uh, perilymphic pressure. And, uh, and then, of course, um, bed rest for, for days afterwards. I've never had to put in a, a, a drain or, or the like. But I think... The history is the thing where you try to anticipate the gusher and if the scan is in any way uncertain or abnormal, don't go there. And if you get the gusher and you're lucky enough to have a finestra, use your piston as your plug. And the last one, a biscuit foot plate. A biscuit foot plate, look, um, you can often trefine those if you take long enough. You just take your time. The problem with the biscuit foot plate is that when you trefine, the trefine is beveled. So the most medial part of the trefine is slightly narrower than the um, than the superficial part of the trefine. And when you put a piston in there that you think looks the right size, you'll feel it fouling and you need to widen the trefine substantially to 0.5. And you need to work it until such time as that piston feels good. The, the other alternative, of course, is to drill the foot plate. Uh, drilling the foot plate with the stabby superstructure in is is tricky and in that situation you can only do it remove the superstructure and then do the drill um, my view of it is that you drill on a wide plane first some of my odologic teachers who are super surgeons could just refine it with a drill I'm not sure that I'm that confident so I will widely plane it down until I see it eggshell and start to see it weep a little bit I'll thin it just that little bit more, and then I'll actually trefine it. Then I'll go with the trefine rather than the drill. So that's the way I'd... Either an obliterative or a biscuit thick foot plate. You've already uh, alluded to the fact that uh, there's um, lifestyle, I guess, related post-op instructions. Are there any other post-op instructions? No, basically, they don't have to be in bed, but they do have to avoid anything that exerts pressure into the perilymph, and we give them 
a written uh, a, a print a printout uh, that they need to read, and they need to understand it clearly. And we reinforce that at the uh, in the surgery. I see the patients ten days later after a stapedectomy. Um, so yeah, they're all to do with things that are likely to exert unreasonable pressure on the uh, perilymph. Does that include flying or scuba diving? I, okay, so for flying, if patients know they're going to fly, I tell them they shouldn't fly for at least a month after stapedectomy. Um, beyond that, I'm happy. Um, I don't think they should ever scuba dive. I think the pressure differentials are such that if you are having trouble equalising at depth and you suddenly um, have a surge equalisation into the middle ear um, of air and you move your drum abnormally and you dislocate your piston or move your piston and then you get vertiginous at depth, you may die. I don't think people with stapedectomy should scuba dive and I tell them all that, that that's the case. Um, I think they can fly and I think professional pilots are no problem because I think the pressure differentials are much, much smaller than with scuba diving. Well, thanks. It's been a, a great discussion uh, on an interesting topic. One thing that I like to finish with is the final word. So the final word is an opportunity for you to either highlight something that we've discussed that you think worth mentioning again in conclusion, or if there's something you think we haven't touched on that is important to the discussion. So I'll hand it over to you for the final word. I, I'm, I'm a conservative stapedectomy surgeon, and I'll seldom offer surgery to patients who've got uh, much less than a 30 to 40 decibel conductive loss. Even if you get a very, very good result, an A-grade result, you're looking at less than 10 dB air bone gap. If they're at 30, you're only increasing them maybe by 15, 20 dB. It, it's not that flash, especially if it's in one ear. I'd never do that. So I like them. You're going to look at a better surgeon if you wait a little longer. The patients will respect you for it because they'll recognise that when you're taking your time about making the decision about their surgery, you've got their interests at heart. And I think you're going to get what look like better results. The technical part's identical, but they look better and you'll have much more appreciative patients. Thanks very much for your time, Dr. Paul. That's the end of this podcast. You can look for other podcasts at iTunes or at our website, entexpertopinion.com, and we're also on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you.